welcome to my podcast, John Scott Lawton's English, you know. Today, I interview Sandra Ham Rooney, who, after gaining a degree in philosophy and music at Birmingham University, worked as a teacher in rural Kenya for voluntary service overseas, and then in a language school in Mexico teaching English before undertaking teacher training qualifications at the Institute of Education in London. Sandra taught for a year in the UK and then spent most of her career working overseas in international organisations as a teacher of English language, teacher trainer, project manager, teaching centre manager and country director. Sandra spent most of her time in the Middle East, in Egypt, Tunisia, Syria, Oman, Bahrain, the occupied Palestinian territories and Algeria, and then in Europe, in Spain and Cyprus. Sandra is now semi-retired and lives in a North Yorkshire village in England, where she's pursuing voluntary activities, waiting until she can travel and undertake international charity work again. Sandra and I both worked together in Kenya, and it was great to catch up with her to reflect on our experiences of teaching English overseas, the importance of voluntary work, and the impact of the work that we did. So, hi, Sandra. How are you? It's really nice to speak to you after all this time. Hi, John. Yeah, quite a number of years. Nice to see you too. And uh, the theme for today is to share our experiences of teaching English overseas. And we first met many years ago. We won't quite um, put the timescale on it, but it was a good few years ago, several decades. And we went to Kenya. So our experiences there quite different because I was at the coast, you were in, in land in Kisumu to the, in the west of Kenya near Marigoli. But um, could you just outline for our listeners a little bit about what voluntary service overseas is as an organisation and perhaps contrast it with how it used to operate and how it operates now? Okay, so uh, voluntary service overseas, as its name suggests, is for people who uh, go uh, abroad to work. Um, it's not fully voluntary. They do get some uh, very small amount of money and usually you have your flights and uh, accommodation uh, paid. Um, when we went all those years ago, uh, VSO accepted people uh, straight from university. So if I remember correctly, we did a one month a training course in how to teach English and then we were let loose on uh, all those poor students in the countries <clears throat> excuse me in the countries that we uh, that we went to and when I say poor students I mean because they were you know they had to put up with us uh, very newly trained uh, minimally trained teachers nowadays I think VSO um, you know, they, they have become uh, much more uh, professional in the sense that they employ people with far greater qualifications uh, and experience, and also nowadays they employ a lot of uh, a lot of their country managers or country directors are from the country uh, which is hosting them. So when I went when we were in Kenya, our field officer was was British, but nowadays I'm pretty sure that the Kenyan field officer the, or the field the, man, the manager the country manager is Kenyan, and that's the case in uh, in many countries in which uh, VSO operates today. 
That also applies to volunteers as well, doesn't it? That the volunteers will often be recruited locally if possible. And certainly that the cultural fit is very important, that people are sensitive to the culture and possibly even indeed the language of the country that we're going to, because it has to be remembered when we went. And we also had not only the four week pre-induction course before we left Britain, but when we got to Kenya, the the funniest episodes in in part, were when we Mm. for two or three weeks, I think it was at Limuru Conference Centre or Bible Centre, learnt Kiswahili as well as we could. Uh, very intensive, very good. I remember if you spoke English, you got fined. And uh, I was in yes, the lower we used class. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we used the money to have a party at the we end did. of it, I remember. Um, and uh, no, I think I think it was nearly a month. And then, of course, we got farmed out to stay with families uh, in and around uh, Limuru. Um, and again, we had to absolutely speak uh, Swahili. Otherwise, they would tell they would report on us to the teachers and we would have to pay fines for every time we spoke uh, spoke English but um, but uh, and of course then I went off to Western Province so I didn't use the Swahili that much while I was there but of course one of the most amazing things about my time in Kenya was being able to travel all over the country so then Swahili did did become really important. Yep it was very uh, very useful for me because I went to the coast where again they would even use the phrase Kiswahili because Kiswahili is the language of the Swahili, Swahili Mm -hmm. being the tribe but even where I was Kigiriyama was the language spoken by my children which was a Michikenda language so a spoken language not often written down and as you say, Kiswahili was the national language. So the children I was teaching English to were learning English as a fourth language. You know, they had Kigiriyama as a spoken, not written language, their tribal language. Then Kiswahili as a national language. Arabic, mm-hmm. if they were Muslims and obviously reading the Quran, and then yeah. uh, English. So tremendous linguistic diversity in a country, you know, of, of that size. And it was different in Western province, I think, different languages and different tribes again. Uh, yes, uh, I was living in, uh, as you say, uh, in Kimaragoli, and they spoke uh, they spoke Marigoli, and of course there were lots and lots of um, different tribal languages across across the whole of Kenya. So as you say, most children would be learning their their, their mother tongue would be the language of the village or the tribe, uh, and then they would learn um, possibly Arabic. Uh, not 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 where I was because they were predominantly animist or Christian um, and and indeed English because mm. many Kenyans you know obviously because of British colonialism um, they they did speak English and quite well in uh, in some areas. Yes there was compulsory and free primary education wasn't there and by primary I mean from the age that the child would have gone to school now that sometimes differed from five, maybe even as, as late as 10 or 11, uh, five or six years of primary education before they then went to secondary, some of which they had to pay for the secondary education. So it was quite challenging. There would be far more children in primary school than there were in secondary school. I don't know if that was the case in, in the Marigoli prov- uh, district as well. Uh, yes, and on occasion, I think at some point over the two years I was there, they did different uh, sittings in the school. So uh, some people would be there from like seven until one, and then others would go there, or seven till 12 or whatever. Other people would go in from one until six. Uh, that happened uh, on occasion. 
Mm. Uh, the school I worked in, it was especially challenging because there was no electricity, no running water. Uh, of course, I lived I lived like that for uh, for two years as well. So I collected uh, water was collected off the roof, you know, into a big uh, into a big uh, drum, um, a big empty uh, kind of oil tanker drum. Mm. Uh, and I had a toilet at the bottom of the garden with a separate room for having a bucket bath in. Um, and we used paraffin lamps or pressure lamps at home. And uh, the school, I remember, because as you say, it's quite a few decades ago, um, I used a typewriter. So, you know, no computers, obviously, in those days, used a typewriter and what was called a bander machine, um, again, which didn't work on electricity. And I can't remember exactly how it worked, but it was basically a kind of rolling machine with that used alcohol and mm -hmm. different color inks to make worksheets. Uh, and that was how I had to, uh, you know, produce materials uh, for the class. Yep, it was like a stencil machine, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So print them yeah. Off. yeah, yeah, fantastic. And I was in a similar situation, as you know, because you visited my house one Christmas, um, quite a way off uh, off the road and uh, 20 kilometres from Melindy, but it, it might as well have been 100 because, again, no running water, no electricity, but very beautiful accommodation I was given. It was a coral-blocked um, house, a bungalow, with three or four rooms, it was luxurious compared to the student accommodation I just left in Sheffield. So I, I was very happy. <laughs> the fact I had to let you collect rainwater in a in a tin um, container or in a bucket, you know, really didn't matter. And the electricity thing—you just learned to cope, didn't you? It wasn't a big thing. It was just you—you yeah. you had to have batteries for your cassette player or your radio. No mobile yep. phones in those days. No computers, as you said, not at least not for us. Um, so it was all very, you know, you just got used to it. And I, I had a fridge, I remember. So that was a luxury, ran off kerosene. Yes. Uh, which is, para, is that another name for paraffin, I think. Um, and of course, I had a mosquito net, which I always slept under, probably more to, you know, to make sure that the snakes wouldn't get to me rather than the mosquitoes, because yeah. there was an interesting wildlife, insect life uh, yeah, where I lived. Yeah. And I think it was that fear that put a lot of people off going in the first place. But again, you either accommodated it, got used to that, or you didn't. I remember waking up one morning when it was very dark and I thought, well, it should be light because I can hear the children outside. So that meant it was at least eight o'clock. School should have been starting within a few minutes, but the room was dark. And I, I, without my glasses on, couldn't work out quite what it was until I realized the whole of the mosquito net was covered in safari ants. So um, I had to manage to get myself out of there. Uh, good word, extricate myself from the net, um, cover myself in kerosene so the, the ants wouldn't want to jump on me and um, somehow managed to get dressed to complaints of what's that smell, sir? Yeah. Yes, I won't. I've got a similar story, but I won't uh, scare our listeners with it. <laughs> Good. Uh, OK, <laughs> you mentioned there that the colonial past that Kenya had, and that mm. was something which obviously part of our four-week induction course before we left Britain touched upon in terms of know a little of the history of the country before you go there, obviously partly the culture, but more important, the role that Britain had played as a colonial power and linguistically in terms of language acquisition and indeed even language use and the purpose for which people put their English 
I always had to think, you know, am I doing the right thing? Is is teaching people English when they've been under British colonial rule, which wasn't the the kindest? Uh, there'd been the Mau Mau Rebellion, of course, in the fifties and early sixties, which was very difficult. Um, a lot of Kenyans were killed, as were British soldiers killed. So it was all very um, quite traumatic. Yet here we were, just a few years on, um, going there to teach English. So. I wonder about the politics of this and how did you feel about it when you were there? Um, well, I think, I mean, I went, I went there in the first place because while I was studying at Birmingham University, I became really interested in Africa and in, uh, especially in freedom struggles in South Africa and in Namibia. And by the time I was finishing my degree, I decided I wanted to do something to help. I mean, you know, in obviously in a very, very small way, but I wanted to make some kind of contribution. And I thought I could do this by volunteering and by teaching English. Um, and I suppose I, for me, English, teaching English was about equipping people. I mean, we know that English is spoken by very, very many people in many, many countries. It's a, it, many people consider that they need English to access the world of medicine, the world of research, the world of work. Um, and even back in those days, all that time ago, I did feel that, um, you know, teach, learning English, a knowledge of English would, would help equip young people with a skill which was really important for the future. And of course, Kenyans certainly felt that them, for themselves. I was lucky in that I wasn't, I wasn't only teaching English, I was also responsible for teaching literature in English, which included quite a lot of African writers, which again, opened up to me the whole world of, you know, kind of writing, uh, of African writing in English. Uh, and I was also there to, uh, to set up a school library which I managed to do with funds from United Nations, from Rotary Club in the UK and various other people, anybody who would give me money or would send me books. Um, and again, I felt that so most of that, most of those books were written in English. Um, and again, I could see that it just opened up, you know, or not opened up a world, but added, it was an added skill for what those young people uh, had already. And I think I've always, you know, through a career, you know, after after being uh, after being a volunteer, and I went to Mexico and taught in a private language school, and then I did, you know, did various qualifications in teaching English to speakers of other languages, and then I joined an international organisation and taught and worked in many other countries, um, not always teaching English, but often responsible for projects or delivering programmes in English. And I always felt and still feel that you know, those countries wanted English as, as, a, as a support. I mean, all the, the historical reasons, the political reasons, whether they're right or wrong, and all the historical, um, you know, the, the, the bad things that, that the British did during their colonial periods, in a way that that's not, that's, of course, it's relevant, but it's not relevant in terms of the skills that young people need in order to succeed in jobs or, you know, it, you know in their employment, in their studies, something like 90% of the world's research is, is produced in English for, the, for many historical reasons. 
of course, some of which is not British colonialism, but it's the uh, influence of America and the you know, United States. Um, so for me, it's just, you know, whatever gives, whatever empowers people, especially young people, to gain access to education, to gain access to, to the world. No, but I'm, I'm sure that that was the case then, and it's very much the case now. You know, if anything, English is used even more as a lingua franca. I'll be coming to that mm -hmm. term in a future podcast. You know, English used as a way of communicating with others, where English may be a shared language, or as you said, very importantly, in terms of um, academia, academic writing being in English, and the political process very often, and the historical process, because... What surprised me when I got to Kenya was just how much the children had to learn in English. In fact, the only subject mm. that they learned in Kiswahili was Kiswahili itself, the language you know that they were studying. Yes. So history was taught in English, geography, mathematics, science, English, of course. Um, so that was really important that they had good English language skills so that they could access the curriculum. Yeah, and I think... Actually, I think, you know, later on in, in life, I would look back to that and think, I think it made me more open minded about about language as well. And also, you know, no, no one English language is is perfect or the right English. Every country developed its own, you know, way of speaking uh, English with its own, you know, its own vocabulary, its own, its own, its own idiosyncrasies uh, and with its own accent and pronunciation. And all of that is fine. You know, there's no need for us to be snobby or snooty about a particular kind uh, of English. Mm -hmm. Yes, I used to uh, really like getting letters from the students when they were not apologising, but <laughs> explaining why they were late for school. And it was in very uh, eloquent, one might say, flowery language. And lots yeah. of issues where one or two would would have done you know i'm sorry i was late sir i had a problem at home would have been fine but i used to get a whole essay of as to <laughs> five minutes late for school but in such creative and descriptive language um, i was very impressed and that came from their primary school teaching that didn't come uh -huh. from me they they came to the secondary school where i was teaching with that language yes yeah, so remember the um the writer series the heinemann writers series uh, was a real benefit because there were many kenyan writers in that series and i've still got those books i read them for yes. myself and then obviously read them with the children and they accessed them and like you i developed a library in fact with the help of the british council at the time um, they supported the development of the library okay let's um come back to that impact thing um to whom do you think the biggest impact lay did it was it that we benefited more as volunteers or the people directly that we were teaching benefited where do you stand on that one um well although i went there you know with these you know i was in my early 20s uh, you know and very uh, positive and uh, and hopeful at that time in life as of course i still am um, but I went there, you know, with with a, with some kind of zeal, to uh, to help you know, to help to do something uh, useful. Um, but to be honest, it was also because I could see myself teaching English uh, in the future, and I knew that doing two years as a volunteer and then another year in a in a you know another year somewhere else would enable me to go off to do teacher to do a teach training. Um, uh, to do a teacher training certificate at the Institute of Education because they required three years of, uh, of uh, experience before they would let you in. Mm, that was London, um, wasn't and it, 
yeah london institute um so so i did go you know with the but i but but when i got there you know i was it was the the most amazing cultural and educational experience of my life it really i learned so much from from kenyans uh, i learned a lot about kenya i learned a lot about life I think living, obviously, as you did, without electricity and running water, without seeing my parents for two years, and I'm an only child, so that partly made me resilient, but it also made it very hard for my parents, I think. Um, you know, all of the skills that I learned while I was there and the understanding that I got of another culture, it made me so much more aware about my own culture and the strengths and weaknesses of my own culture. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, I also in terms of teaching skills, you know, trying to teach without electricity, you know, all the creative things that we had to do to try and make the lessons interesting. Um, and then just learning from those those young those young Kenyans, boys and girls, you know, they of course, they were funny. They were human. They were they were clever. There were some not so clever um, you know, there were some. There were some great individuals, great characters, and some of them I still remember, you know, today, and especially two of the, not the, well, I remember some of the teachers, but also the ancillary staff, a couple of those uh, of the Kenyan women who, who took me kind of under their wing and were so kind and generous and helpful. And that has in general been my experience in, in any country I've been to, you know, with the people that I've uh, that I've lived with, but especially in Kenya, Kenya, because one thing as a volunteer, you do live more, you do live more like uh, somebody living in the local community than I think in any other job. I mean, of course, we're not Kenyan. We weren't Kenyan. Um, it was very funny if I can just uh, this little um, anecdote. I used to whenever I used to walk along the uh, the untarmacked road to the nearest small town, Majengo, to buy uh, supplies, I would walk along that road and the little kids would come out of their huts and ha little houses and they'd shout Jambo Mzungu which means hello white woman or white one at me and I did that and it used to start to annoy me until one day somebody said to me well sh shout Jambo more Africa back at them so I did which says hello African and all the kids rolled around laughing uh, and to you know so then every single day that I would ever walk down that road you know, there was this little repartee between me and the me and the kids and I think that brought home to me that actually sometimes people are just curious or ignorant they're not actually prejudiced or racist and that was a big that was a big learning point for me you know I mean people of course used to point a finger and look at me and some people were scared of me because I was the only white person around um, but they weren't they were never hostile or unfriendly unless that was happened to be their particular you know personality yeah. fair enough there's i think that's true i think very interesting cultural experiences um people do talk about something called culture shock where you go with your own expectations your own way of uh, understanding how the world works and then it's challenged and i remember there were a few volunteers who did struggle with that um and they didn't last very long they may have left um but i, I just enjoyed the experience and as you say, it was a tremendous learning opportunity. Every single day there was something different. And yes, in part, that made me more resilient, the ability to get over difficulties, to face problems. 
um, and others just to enjoy it and think, you know, I'll never get this opportunity again to live, you know, at relatively low cost with very few responsibilities other than to teach. Um, so I really made the most of it. I actually extended for a third year because I was enjoying it that much. And, you know, I had the time to do that. So I really enjoyed it. Um, I think, it, I mean, in it, I could just say, in addition yep. to the work, and I did, you know, I do feel that I worked very hard when I was there, but we also did have holidays. So there were school holidays. And during those holidays, I would, I would never do it now, but I hitchhiked all over Kenya. I think in those days, of course, it was much safer than it would be now. And uh, sometimes I did that on my own. And there were just, there was so much. I mean, the country is absolutely beautiful. I loved dancing and music and Kenyan East African music at the time. The Nairobi nightclubs were full of Zairean music, mm -hmm. and uh, it was inc it was it was such it was so so much fun. I love photography, so wonderful um, you know opportunities for me there. So you know so it was it there was quite a lot of hard work um, during school time, obviously, but when school school school's out and. You know, I had a, an amazing um, two years also traveling around the country and, you know, seeing different uh, different places. Again, that Lingala music, I still play it today. Um, fantastic. I would love yep. to put some pieces in, but um, without any license, I can't. But I'll, I think I'll have to use some of the preset sounds as, as little breaks. In fact, we might come to one now. Okay. After Kenya then, Sandra, you, you seem to have a, had a very um, impressive career, a stellar career in terms of not, as you say, necessarily always directly teaching English, but managing English language provision or working in different organizations. Um, which countries did you actually work in after Kenya? Um, okay, so, so after Kenya, I went to Mexico for a year so that then I could go and do my PGCE at the Institute of Education. Then I worked in uh, Birmingham in the UK for a year, um, but realized that that wasn't really going to meet, you know, what I wanted from a, from a career. So then I went to the United Arab Emirates and I was in Abu Dhabi uh, for two and a half years teaching English, English as a foreign language full time. Um, then I came back to the UK and did my master's in teaching English to speakers of other languages. And I was able to pay for that for myself because of savings that I made in uh, in the Gulf. Uh, and then I, uh, I went to Egypt and did uh, two years there in my first kind of semi-management position. Then I went to Barcelona and did one year of a two-year MBA programme. I left it for financial reasons. Um, then I went to Tunisia, uh, and I went to Tunisia as a as a teaching centre manager. So I was responsible for quite a you know group of teachers uh, teaching English. And that's where I, um, after three years, I actually got married. I married a Tunisian, uh, and we moved to Syria, mm -hmm. uh, where I had one son. I was there for two years, uh, and then we moved to uh, Oman. And my second son was born in uh, Muscat. Um, and then I went to, then I was promoted and I got a more responsible management job, basically in, in charge of the overseas office in Bahrain. Um, and then I did this, a similar job in Palestine, in Cyprus and Algeria before returning to the UK uh, about 18 months ago. 
That's a tremendous tour. So, so um, mainly Middle East, mainly <laughs> Middle East. And, and now you're going to ask me. Yeah, now you're going to ask me if I speak Arabic. And I, I have to admit that my, I, I've learned Arabic in, tried to learn Arabic in every country that I've lived in, but it's so difficult because the um, colloquial Arabic in each country is very, very, very different. And um, so I did, so I, I understand a lot, but again, we all know how much easier it is to understand and listen um, than it is to produce, you know, to actually speak or write in a language. So uh, it's my biggest regret that I should be fluent in Arabic considering the number of years that I've lived there, but I'm not. That's very true. And it's uh, a topic I touch on with most of my particularly adult students where they say, I really want to improve my speaking skills. Why am I having such difficulty? Um, they, this is speaking English. And I'm thinking, well, I'll explain the difference between, as we call it in linguistics, receptive skills and productive skills. But yes, reading the text is given for you. So it's a little bit easier. You have to still have to decode to break down the text and sometimes some people translate other times they just yes. try to read and get the understanding through english um similarly with listening because the other person is talking to you or you're listening to this podcast for example and the material is presented to you music's a bit like that but then when you're having to produce either the words or the text in writing yourself that's when you need a good understanding or a sound understanding of grammar and then of course the vocabulary that you want to express yourself so there is a journey there to be gone through which is quite complex quite difficult in any language um, and english is no different so of all those countries sandra that you've worked in which is a hugely impressive list and, and very enriching culturally do you have a favorite as the one that you think well i would love to go back there i'd love to live there again or there was something really rich about the experience that you enjoyed um well i don't want to keep you you know too long but i could actually say about several of the countries why they were so incredibly special but i'll lim limit it to a couple so i think oman uh, living in Muscat, Oman is, uh, for people who don't know, it's kind of next door to the United Arab Emirates uh, in the Gulf area. Beautiful, beautiful country. So Oman, uh, an incredibly beautiful country, very diverse, uh, really uh, kind of normal, uh, down-to-earth uh, people, um, and very incredibly clean, lots and lots of building uh, building standards and building regulations because the Sultan Qaboos uh, was very, very strict in all of that. So it was just a very, very pleasant place to live. And my children, one of my children was born there and the other one was, was very young and I was there for five years. So and we were able to travel around, go to the desert and, you know, beautiful beaches. So that that, that was a, a wonderful place to be. And then I think at the, kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum in a way um, is working in occupied Palestinian territories. Uh, I was based in East Jerusalem and I covered um, the West Bank, Gaza, Ramallah, Nablus, Hebron, you know, all the Palestinian uh, territories, what's supposed to be part of a Palestinian state. Uh, and I was there for three and a half years, and I would say that my experiences there and what I had read before and what I have read since, um, you know, all the films I've seen about the region, etc. I would say that it was the most 
it was the most stimulating, interesting, but also heartbreaking uh, experience uh, of my life, I think. And in some ways it did, it did remind me of Kenya uh, in terms of the impact that it had on me. Um, and again, you know, how much I learned and I'm still learning because I'm now working for a couple of charities that are involved in trying to um, uh, promote Palestinian human rights uh, and an end to the military occupation. Uh, and the terrible things which are happening there, um, you know. So from, but but to to work there and to live uh, and to live and work amongst Palestinians and see just how focused on education they are, how important the English language is to them, how generously spirited they are, especially considering you know the British colonial past in Palestine. Um, yeah, that that was probably from a from a work point of view, that was probably the most fulfilling uh, job that I've had. We were also able to bring out many, uh, quite a lot of uh, British musicians, poets, dancers, um, and again, seeing them interact with Palestinians and seeing uh, for them to see Palestine at first hand, rather than just through very biased news reports, um, that again was uh, was you know was was a fantastic uh, opportunity, uh, and I do see it as a privilege to have been able to live in Jerusalem as well. So many people are not permitted to visit uh, or to go to Jerusalem, so living there for three and a half years really was a it was an amazing experience. That sounds fantastic, and it's a country, um, no territory, that I would love to to visit as well. And the politics uh, have to be thought about because it is so political the situation there. But um, certainly culturally very enriching, amazing. Thank you, Sandra. I think just to finish, something about the impact again, both in terms of on your life and on your work. Um, go back to those volunteer days of <clears throat> several decades ago. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing that we're speaking. We've we've not spoken very much in those years, but we've communicated via the uh, the glories of Facebook. Um, but what is it that you've carried through your life that you think you go back and you think I learned to do that in Kenya? Um, I think a few things. I think one is you know really challenging stereotypes. I mean, I did a bit of that because I did a philosophy degree, but it was brought home to me when I went to live in. Kenya. I think put it really trying to put myself in other people's shoes to understand an issue from their point of view and to realize that culture, of course, it has a huge impact on the what we think and feel. I think I've got also a fascination with why people believe and do the things they do, um, whether they're right or wrong. I think that again, partly from my philosophy degree, but much more from going to Kenya and having my whole, you know, my horizons completely broadened. I think it made me more courageous and resilient. And also, I think, I mean, I still do, I do get impatient if I have to wait. But for many, many, many years after living in Kenya, I used to come back to the UK and I fail, faced a lot more culture shock coming back to England, actually, than living in the countries overseas. And I would be I would get annoyed with people who, you know, complained about having to wait five minutes for the bus 
because of course in Kenya you know you might might wait an hour you might wait three and the bus might end up not coming and when it did come it was a matatu full of lots and lots of people and chickens and bags of uh, you know bags of corn or, or whatever so I think it for for a number of years, I was more patient. I think, you know, in old age, I'm becoming less patient now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think I think it was in it was in all of those and maybe a kind of you know supporting the underdog. Uh, not that uh, to say that people in other countries are underdogs, but I think there is a real there's a huge difference in wealth between many countries, and I think again it brought it home to me. That there is a disproportionate, you know, that the, the sharing of wealth around the world is absolutely unfair. It's unjust, um, and I'm glad to say that I do still get, uh, you know, very uh, a bit emotional and upset about those differences. And you know, I'm t- doing it in a very very small way. I'm you know now working for a couple of charities to try to help uh, redress that. I haven't done enough in my life, I, but I should have done more. Um, but I think, you know, the, my eyes being opened, you know, fully for the first time was from being a VSO in Kenya all those years ago. Yes, I'd certainly share with you that reverse culture shock coming back to the UK was far harder than going to Kenya. Uh, the one that really hit me was going into a hypermarket or a supermarket and seeing the array of uh, the aisles of goods foodstuffs yes. that you could buy and I just couldn't cope with it there was too much choice so <laughs> I used to turn around and come out I was used to going into a little shop where you either did or didn't buy coke because that's what was on sale that day so yes those are lovely reflections Sandra I'm very grateful for your time um, I think we connected the issues around language acquisition language use but also the impact on us as individuals as volunteers and I would encourage anybody who's thinking about volunteering overseas in whatever capacity to support their own skill development, but also sharing their knowledge, sharing their expertise with others, but also this opportunity that you will get to learn. I think that's a message that we would both like to communicate to people. Just give it a go, just try, because there is so much to learn about the world. Thank you. Okay, Sandra Hanrooney. Hope to speak to you again soon. Lovely, hope so too. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye. All right then, bye.